0: and welcome to the very first episode of our shiny new podcast Branching Factor. You're here on the ground floor just as things are kicking off and very happy for y'all to be here whether you're listening via our wonderful audio version or you're getting to see both myself and my wonderful co-host in all this visual splendor. I'm your host Tommy Thompson and in this episode for our very first episode I'm sitting down with one of our four, that's right, four co-hosts we're going to have on the show today sitting down with George Osborne. How are you doing, sir?
1: Not too bad. Thank you very much, Tommy. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm good because we're doing this. We're finally doing this. We've been threatening to do the podcast for a couple of months now.
1: Yeah, we've been saying it's going to happen and we're finally at DEF CON podcast. So get ready for the explosion. Mm. Oh, the, the mm. already potential episode titles just flying yeah. out from the very beginning. <laughs> exactly. Never extend a metaphor too far. That's one of my sayings. and never. i never listen to myself. <laughs>
0: So yeah, just to kind of introduce uh, for anyone not familiar with what this podcast is and our format is, this is another gaming podcast because apparently there wasn't enough of them to begin with, but we're really interested in discussing topics of interest relevant, relevant to us. Um, So myself and the rest of my co-hosts, we all are in and around games uh, in a professional capacity, be it that we're game developers, we're involved in the games industry, we've taught game development, or we do research in and around games. And so much like a lot of the other work that I do uh, over on my YouTube channel AI and Games, this is really about demystifying a lot of stuff around games, particularly in the industry and and, and beyond, and hopefully having some moderately intelligent discussion uh, that is possibly entertaining as well. And so that's really kind of the end goal for this. And you know, if you're thinking, why us? well for myself as the host uh, I am the voice and writer and producer of the YouTube series AI in Games which I've spent the last 8 years making videos making content which is all about demystifying the realities of video game development and uh you know this is looking at how AI is using commercial games but it's also looking at how AI is con- using AI research to not only make better games, but how games are actually furthering AI research. So go check that out if you're not familiar with it already. And like I say, like the rest of the co-hosts, their job, or rather the reason that I asked them to be part of this this nonsense here on Branching Factor, was I was looking for people with different voices and different perspectives who could who could provide something new and fresh. And with that, that's why we got George right here, Uh, on the very first episode. So George, I guess for the audience, tell us a little bit about yourself. What are you doing? What have you done? And why are you here?
1: Well, it's a very good question. I mean, what I'm doing is changing. It's changing as we speak. I'm in a kind of a Doctor Who style transformation at the moment. Um, So I'm literally just starting uh, as Director of Communications at a business called Tasso Advisory. And what it does is tech policy consultancy. Yes, that is a glamorous phrase. I think it's <laughs> the excitement is already, I'm sure, um, building amongst the listeners. But, but what that basically means is it ha- we we help tech and games businesses speak to government. So we give them advice about how to get their point of view on the big issues that could affect their business, especially in terms of government policy, onto the agenda, You know, whether that's by speaking to politicians, whether it's by speaking to people who work in government self that's the purpose of what we do but the reason why I've ended up in that that place is that for the last four years I've been the head of communications for UK, which is the video games industry trade body in the UK um, and so I've basically been helping being almost the voice of the UK games industry having previously spent um, the decade before kind of working in it in a variety of different roles as like a journalist content creator um, organizing business events and essentially doing anything else that will pay me so I felt like I should go back and do my time on behalf of the sector. Uh, but what that means is that I've spent a lot of uh, probably like I would say realistically, yeah, about the half decade of my life thinking a lot about the perception of games, how people in the wider world see them, how we as an industry need to talk about ourselves in, in those kinds of environments. And then what that actually means politically, and especially what that means politically at a time of quite a lot of turmoil. And uncertainty. And that's like, how do you get... problems? <laughs> yeah, exactly. How do you get your point across when it's pure bedlam? That's one of the real challenges. And genuinely that that's a major challenge both for games but, but for pretty much any company, industry, organization trying to speak to government is how do you make a positive impact when actually things are a little bit chaotic? So yeah, been trying to do that for the last few years, that's for sure. And um also I think it's worth saying that you're one of the co-chairs for GamesAid. Uh, I'm which... indeed. There you go. You've teed that up much better than there I did. Um, so yes, yeah, so the games industry charity. Uh, it's was formed by the UK games industry. And every year people vote uh, to back a series of children's charities from across the UK. Basically, all of them are small, but all of them help people who are especially from disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, So we're backing six charities at the moment this year. They're fantastic causes. Um, And you can go to gamesaid.org to find out all about them. So, yeah, there you go. You did a better job of introducing it than I did. One
0: of the reasons I wanted to segue into that was because I was trying to figure out before this call where we first met and then i realized it was actually in relation to games industry and charity because yeah. i'd known who you were for a while um pre- predominantly on twitter uh, followed you on twitter and what have you because you're quite you were quite a vocal uh personality in the industry even before you started at uk because we met i think before uk by about a year or so but we both ended up running the london 10k together um for special effect and the special effect team were all dressed up in gaming related attire um there is photos of it i was i don't know if you were but i was i was dressed up as vaz from far cry 3 as i recall um yeah.
1: but uh, I, yeah i just did i just did the kit i just turned up in the lovely running kit and just ran it and i was like <laughs> i feel underdressed for this
0: yeah, one of the worst bits and i can actually hear motion outside was um i had to get eyeliner done um, for yeah. this. No, I actually have a, a, I have abs- one of my top fears is I am terrified of anything being near my eyes um, yeah. and you know like any uh, horror content, movies television games or whatever where it gets near the eye completely freaks me out. There's a particular sequence in Dead Space 2 that immediately comes to mind yeah. so my partner was like applying eyeliner to me that morning before I got on the train and I'm literally holding onto the edge of the bed so hard you could hear it creak Um. And they're just like, "Would you just calm down for a minute?" And I'm
1: like, "Ah, like, I, I didn't, I, I, just didn't realize you'd gone through that, my friend. No, I'm, that I'm, was so, I'm sorry, but you did that for charity, the, of all the things. Pain there
0: we go. I'm going through for for two photos. I think that wound up on Twitter that were probably a good subsequently cause, though, deleted. Tommy. It was for it was a good all cause. It. All it was it. good cause. And uh, yeah, shout out to our mutual friend um, Andrew Roper, I believe, who was mm-hmm. who introduced us. Who was also dressed up in a Mario and Yoshi costume. That yes. Yeah. An inflatable Mario and Yoshi costume that subsequently deflated during the run.
1: Yeah. And I I think I remember it, it was either that year or a following year where he got injured somewhere around but I think track. it was the same year he hurt his ankle. Yeah. I think about 5k in or something. Yeah, because the thing was is that I was a little bit ahead and that there, there was just basically a bend of the course. And so as I was coming back down, I I saw him coming and I, I was like sort of jokingly sort of shouting encouragement, being like come on, Andrew, you know, hurry up. And then he's just like, oh, Roper. And he's like, I've done my ankle in. I literally can't go any faster <laughs> than this. And it's like, yeah, I do feel bad about that. I didn't didn't, didn't realise that had happened until no. he was like, ah, oh, my ankle. And it's like, okay. So what's turned from being um, gentle encouragement is now now actually just active bullying. Fortunately, you know, he's still with us. It wasn't terminal. Um, yes, that's it. Yes, exactly. Uh, it's not in memoriam, fortunately. <laughs>
0: Um, so yeah, if you're if you're already enjoying the shenanigans, I think it's important to state that this, this podcast is supported by everything else that I host and operate over on AI and Games. So it has been supported by our wonderful uh, community who are on the AI and Games Patreon. Um, so if you want to listen to this podcast, if you listen to enough of it and you go, this is actually pretty good, I want to hear more of it without the ads that are appearing. Uh, or if you want to submit questions more directly to us. Um, head on over to AIgames.com forward slash Patreon where you can find out a lot more about goodies that are available both as part of the podcast and as part of the larger YouTube operation that I run and some exclusive content along the way as well some of that exclusive content we haven't quite figured out yet but we're going to do it we know it's going to happen one step at a time one step at a time so yeah I guess that's us we're officially up and running the podcast has begun we're here How's things? Because I realize you and I haven't I I'm trying to think. So we've spoken briefly in pre- preparation for running yeah. this. But I realized that like I didn't I saw you in person in the summer and we didn't properly speak. I think we literally were like ships passing yeah. um at Develop in Brighton. Yeah. Um which for anyone not familiar, Develop is like the UK's biggest game development conference, and it runs in Brighton, which is right on the south coast of England. Um, And it runs in a hotel that is in dire need of air conditioning and didn't have any of it when we were there. So we were all dying a very slow and painful death. But I saw you on multiple occasions running around doing something and I didn't bother trying to stop you because I figured if George is going somewhere in a hurry, this this is serious. Yeah, and that, that, I guess that would have been in in, in your former capacity as part of, of Yuki, because I'm, I'm assuming Yuki is pretty busy at that conference.
1: Yeah, well, I, I mean, it, it, there's two things that were happening there. So <laughs> GamesAid was running a load of activities. Oh, so yes, we so had, um We had a stand on the actual conference floor that was doing basically a sort of an ongoing um god what was it doing was it doing a raffle or was it doing a shop anyway main thing was we were flogging stuff so there was loads of stuff up there um there was basically a networking thing on the second night and then at the awards itself we ended up doing a load of stuff about raffling raffling some more things off so it ended up being that I was running around doing those things. And then at the same time with Yuki, Yuki had a couple of activities, but I think the biggest thing about events like that is just, it's a space where you can talk to people and Mm. go and sort of take, take the pulse of what's going on with the industry. And so I was having near enough back-to-back meetings all over the place with lots of different people just to basically chat about what's going on. Um, Because in terms of Yuki itself, so, you know, it had about, by the end, about nearly 600 members. Most of them are UK games businesses or games businesses based in the UK. But the thing is, is that even though you keep in contact with loads of people, you don't often have that kind of critical mass in one place where you can just go right across the course of this day. I can see 10, 15 people from loads of different businesses, find out what they're doing, find out also what they're thinking. Um, Because a lot of the time, a lot of my job was actually about we need to come up with policy positions or communications positions that are authentically of the whole industry. And, you know, with the greatest of, um, you know, respect to certain businesses, there are certain massive businesses who have very big communications and lobbying teams who are out there talking every day about what they want and what their point of view is. And that is completely when right. they're right, they're well well off doing that because it's a sensible thing to do. But it does mean that when you're trying to actually form a position that is off the industry, you always have to counterbalance for that, and you have to counterbalance by speaking to people, by going, "Okay, you might be making this big representation, and I know what you're saying, but actually, you're still one business. What does everyone else think?" So somewhere like Develop is pretty much that brilliant opportunity to go and do that.
0: And that was, but, and that was also like the first year um, it had been physical in yeah. what two two or three years, I think it was at least two years, I think, because it didn't well, so th- Summer 2020 and 2021, it was virtual. So this was the first.
1: So in, in 2021, it did run, but a kind of a streamlined, like physical oh, version. Right. So they did it in October. But th- so that did. was the thing. It, it was later in the year. It was scaled back, basically. Like they deliberately did less because they were like, Let's keep it on the slate because we've obviously got some money and, you know, making money is better than not making money, especially if you're an event company who's had to shut their doors during COVID, which, uh, you know, a lot of them had to basically. Um, So they did do that. But yeah, last summer was the first time it was properly industry back. So, yeah, it was a real opportunity there just to go and meet and greet peeps. So I
0: I think I think we had like a five minute conversation in the press and speaker room yeah like that's right wednesday or something like that we bumped into each other and it was just like oh hey like we both had that 10 minute lull and um, then it was like and then
1: we know we're like and, then, and now we like, must go on with our lives because yeah that, you know those are the thing about those conferences is that they're really really useful and i think it's it's always a challenge because you don't want the industry to feel like um you know it's locked behind certain <laughs> doors or certain things but actually yeah. developers is one of the few places where if you are just willing to go along and hang out near the venue, you can see and meet pretty much everyone without ever paying for a conference ticket. You know, yeah. So it's one of those things where the cost of, if you're talking about the cost of doing business, the cost of transport and paying for some coffees is a lot, cheaper than the amount that you're going to get out in return just in terms of who you meet what kind of work you might be able to drum up off it or in my case kind of research and intel you know the kinds of stuff people will talk to you about and tell you about yeah Um, and there was stuff that happened that week that yeah was actually really important for me like literally within the fortnight like there was stuff that was talked about whereas like this is um things I'm having to deal with so yeah it's definitely worth it
0: yeah yeah I, I think it was the first time I'd went um, I'd been threatening to go for a, a while and just hadn't made the plunge and then subsequently I wound up uh, I had a bunch of meetings with companies potential work that I was yeah. maybe going to do and so immediately and also just it was interesting as someone who is now I've went from being well big like part of my year this year is I've now quit academia after 10 yeah. years in the sector I'm now fully in the games industry and it was interesting because I was giving a talk on the first day that i then got to meet a lot of people who were like yeah we've been following you for years um and it's nice to meet you in person and see what actually hear the voice um yeah uh, hear the voice also without the the presentation glamour attached to it which is even it becomes increasingly more back to raw glaswegian um the more beers i have which doesn't help particularly when you're trying to have a conversation with people who aren't scottish but no Yeah. Uh it was it was nice to be able to just make those connections and well, there's some stuff that might be coming out of that as well, which is which is exciting. But um lovely. Yeah. And so funnily enough, I think we're recording just for clarity for the audience, we're recording this right before the the holiday season, um, yeah. in twenty twenty one, even though we're airing it in twenty twenty two. Uh and we're just I mean, I think George, you're officially uh off for for the break i'm about a day or so behind you i think another day or so and then i'm I'm good well
1: yeah well i'm just going <coughs> to briefly correct the record for you there tommy this is oh, on the holiday of off? 2022 into 2023 yes you Sorry. just uh no it's, it's okay because uh we, we could go back in time a year I'm i've sure lost this, this... i've lost all
0: track of yeah, time time uh, has no honest, meaning
1: anymore I, I i'm still pretty convinced that it's 2020 at the moment to be totally honest with you <laughs> um no so I, I i've been off um for a little while now um you know basically that that time between jobs so i've been enjoying a bit of downtime uh doing the kinds of things that i like to do in my downtime which seems to be um going out for nice food and reading government consultation documents because apparently that's what i actually do in my spare time to be Um, fair
0: that does seem kind of your speed
1: it, it does yes uh and it's it's interesting to actually have time to sit down and read things rather than just flip through it or in my case normally on a lot of these documents go control f video games and then basically <laughs> work back from there um but um but yeah i mean just in terms of th- this holiday period though yeah it's um it's kind of a it, it's a big one because it is that switchover period and it's interesting to be coming into the new business and going into the new role and so for me it's just about making sure I make the most of that downtime so you know I am seeing a lot of friends spending a lot of time doing those kinds of things got a few games on the go finally catching up with rabbits Um, because I feel like I don't really know why I think something about the rabbits has always sort of slightly annoyed me I think they are I mean, they're deliberately obnoxious characters. I understand yes. that, but they're still quite obnoxious. <laughs> so I managed to get through that to get to the realization that Mario versus Rabbits as a series is actually really well calibrated. Like it's got the kind of ex comi tactical appeal, but wrapped up in a way that is a lot less dispiriting than your entire elite squad has been murdered and your free missions out <laughs> from the final mission. And oh good god, what the hell am I going to do? Um, instead, it's much more just like lowish stakes, but. Still quite thoughtful and still quite yeah. interesting. Um, um so, are you playing the sequel at the moment or I'm, I'm on numero Uno. So, oh you're on number uh, one, right? Yeah, yeah, so that's it. It's, it's one of those um it's one of those games that I kind of had for a while and it was sort of sitting around but basically i I'd mostly been playing Slay the Spire intensely oh. for about well i'd say three months i'd actually say it's about a year and three months um in terms of being something that i constantly have been dipping back into and so having basically completed all of the main run-throughs of the main characters i've just been sort of knocking achievements off doing things like the ascension um but i felt like i was just hitting a point where i played loads of it so i did i switched over to rabbits and that's been good um, I also came off the high of Pentiment, which um, oh, is just I, absolutely I astonishing.
0: Just listening to the um, Giant Bomb Game of the Year uh, yeah. deliberations, and they they spoke. They've, I've heard them more than once um, speak very highly of Pentiment. It seems like something I need to check out at some point.
1: Yeah, Pentiment does something that very few choice based games do, which is it makes all of your choices significant without ever giving you the confidence that they were right. So mm. mechanically, it allows you to make major decisions that impact the game. Often without, in, in some cases, um, you know, you'll end up at a moment where a big decision comes up and things that you've done earlier that you probably should realize have had an impact do have an impact. And you realize yeah. it at the moment you make a decision. But even then, just within the narrative as well, there are moments where In other games, they would be like, there's a right decision here, especially because there's a a strong element of like murder mystery investigation in it. Right. Whereas Pentiment is very much more like, well, you've got a limited time to find the evidence, and you've got to make a choice. So make a choice. And then you make a choice and you sit there going for the entire rest of the playtime, was that was was that right? right?" And that is difficult to achieve in games, Mm. very much what making decisions is like in real life you know like that's pretty much is it what we expect
0: i guess one of the things there is does it avoid the um the trapping that a lot of those games have where it it still successfully communicates what those options were to you so that you are confident that was that you made the choice that you made and then you're still worried about the ramifications because i'm thinking of like a lot of actually the walking dead games i think are a good example of this where they give you there's option a and there's option b and then something gets lost in translation because you look at you may misinterpret what option b is and then the character doesn't quite do what you envisaged
1: so i think one of the things that pentiment does well is that on on some of those bigger decision moments it will do a kind of a flash up saying you know someone's going to remember this but I think the biggest thing that it does is it just introduces because it's so strongly about characters because every single character within that village has such a defined personality Mm -hmm. the choices that you can make are never it's very rarely like they're sort of obviously good or bad in terms of like a paragon system right you know this is good this is bad they're very much more like as a human being going and having a chat with this person, um, you know what, like uh, as a sort of an example, my character, I chose a background of legal training and being like, you could be sympathetic about the situation their family's in, or you can go and roll out the answer where it's like, well, technically, in terms of imperial law, this is absolutely fine. Now, if you choose the imperial law option, obviously, everyone goes, "You're an absolute norbed. Why are you doing this?" You know, it's just like, "Why are you talking about this thing in this particular way?" That's just not right, and and that's the whole thing is that sentiment gets round that problem by accepting that everything is grey, everything is murky, and I think that is just one of its massive strengths is, you know, even those things like, and, and that's, you know, using that example of an element of my character that I chose to design that I found really interesting is normally when you play role-playing games, those kinds of things that you choose in terms of your character build are treated as almost like little cheat codes or things that you can use to jump a gate, right? Yeah. Is that it gets you through it and you go, cool, I can go on to the next thing. In Pentiment, you can actively mess up your chances by not reading the room and by going, okay, I'm going to use my, I'm going to use my training or my background really inappropriately here. So, you know, another one of the things was that um, my Andreas was a former party boy who had, you know, learned law, but had gone obviously sort of hard on it when he was doing so. (laughs) And again, like there are points where the party boy prompt comes up and it's like, that's clearly an inappropriate thing to be saying here right now. So do you actually want to say that? And you have to make that decision yourself. Um, So I don't think it ever really suffers from those problems about is that exactly what you want your character to do? Because the whole thing is, is that you're trying to read how your character would react effectively around those people to maybe find out more information, build that relationship. And so it becomes very, very human. And I think um, that's very well done. And I think the setting also helps too. Yeah. Definitely,
0: been, I think that might be a game I try and check out during
1: the break. I think this is on Game Pass as well, isn't it? So yeah, um, it, it, it's also without being too much of a spoiler. It's it does have a fairly festive scene within it, so you can definitely yeah. justify it as a Christmas game. That's for sure. There we go.
0: Yep. Maybe that next year we start putting together our list of Christmas games. We were too late in doing this this year but next year we'll come up with our official branching factor list of Christmas games um, including Die Hard Trilogy whether that counts on the Playstation (laughs) 1 God I'm showing my age, I'd almost forgotten that game exists Um, Yeah, no, I'd be interested to hear what you think about Mario and Rabbids at the end Um, as someone who I enjoy XCOM funnily enough I've never finished the reboot of XCOM, I've never actually finished it which is amusing to me because I was so excited when it came out um, as someone who played a lot of the original UFO enemy unknown, yeah. and um you, I think you speak to like the the permadeath and the there's the the save scumming that emerges because it's just so dense and emotionally draining. I think to go through even one mission sometimes in XCOM can just be overbearing. The the lightheartedness and of Mario and Rabbids enables, and I think the the interesting thing about it, as you alluded to, is that it's not casual. It's not. It doesn't diminish the 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 tactical complexity. There's still a a huge amount of complexity in that game, and particularly when you get to the later levels where you're figuring out how to do massive combo chains in one turn with just two three characters. That it's it's still enabling. It's still scratching that itch that I have for a really rich and engaging and um, interesting. Tactics game, but I'm not having to deal with the emotional burden that comes with it. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Because I'm, I'm in the middle. I started playing the second one uh, in the last month or so, and I'm only maybe, I think I'm about 20. F- it's, it's a much denser game. And so I yeah. think technically it says I'm 25% of the way through it, but I've only I've, I've played it for like nine hours, 10 hours. Yeah. But, oh my God, there's so much more content here. It's but, lots of game. Um, yes. Uh, God, what have I? My gaming hasn't been that exciting because I, I often do stuff with regards to the YouTube. And then what happened recently was I just kept falling back on multiplayer games yeah. whenever I've got like I've got an hour to kill. And um, my cr- my my weird crutch that I developed during the pandemic was Dead by Daylight, yeah. uh, which is the asymmetric horror multiplayer game which I still play far too much of. But um, I started playing actually because a bunch of others were playing it. Was the new Call of Duty, yeah. which I haven't played Call of Duty in years i completely fell off the series i think actually i played the modern warfare in 2019 that's the only call of duty i've played with any seriousness in about a decade because it's but um i think modern warfare 2 is probably the best one of those they have made in a very long time and it it's snappy it's fun the level design is much like they've kind of streamlined a lot of it they went back to tighter verticality three lane style maps that as someone who played a lot of the earlier modern warfare but certainly the first two it yeah. feels much more in keeping with those um and yet i've strangely found that quite engaging and i keep coming back to it um even though we've been playing that now for about two months um it's got a whole horde of problems like yeah. it's actually probably and i say this with full respect to the developer team, I fully acknowledge shipping a game is bad enough. Shipping a game at the scale of Call of Duty sounds just, that scares the heck out of me just thinking about it. But it is definitely the roughest shonkiest Call of Duty I've seen come out the gate. Um, Interesting. Not so much in gameplay, like a lot of the gameplay is fine but user UI and user experience is quite often broken. And there's still bugs that they're patching out two months in. And I think much has been spoken online about the Is it the ui is i think was it one of the lead designers i think for the ui originally worked on was like a lead at hulu and you can see that impact that they've moved everything from vertical to horizontal alignment for the placement of game modes and stuff where it's meant to look like a streaming service which but for the purposes of a video game that is often quite fast-paced it doesn't suit it at all so like opening up you want to change your loadout in the middle of a match and it'll open them up horizontally yeah and it wastes like. all this realistic because interestingly i've i already got so far that it has to scroll off screen yeah because i had six different seven different loadouts and then like if you just made this vertical they'd, they'd all be on the screen but no you've you've stretched this so far it's it's such a weird thing to see them I understand that like, there's a, particularly with Call of Duty, it's a game of that magnitude and scale that they want this mass appeal to some extent and want to make it yeah. relatively, you know, the accessibility of it, I think it's always super critical and important. Yeah. But I actually think this is a step in the wrong direction because the, they've went so far down this route that it's actually creating accessibility problems.
1: Yeah. And... I mean, I feel feel like it would be remiss at least not to mention the fact that Activision Blizzard had been in dispute with a number of the parts of the studio and some of the companies they work with who do their QA testing over yep. the last year and a bit. So they, they have been basically in various stages of those studios in particular starting to unionize. So that's been a an undercurrent there. And I would not be surprised if it's one of those things where maybe that could be part of the factor in terms of mm-hmm. if you've got a bit of an internal battle going on there, maybe in terms of the amount of output you're getting on their testing of these kinds of things or their ability to test these kinds of things while yeah. they're in dispute, maybe reduces. Uh, I, I don't know, it's hypothesis. This, but it's an interesting one, yep, certainly.
0: Uh, but it's it's a surprisingly, and, and I funnily enough, I think that conversation and the, and the conversation that has surrounded Activision Blizzard for the last couple of years made me highly reluctant to check this game out because I have actively avoided anything that the the company has been putting out for a little while now, um, for that very reason. Yeah. But uh, no, we we I think essentially it was my all my my one group of my friends who all play games together. were letting no, we're we're keen to go back to call of duty and i think we played one of the the free weekends or something um yep. it, before it came out like one of the beta weekends and it's like, actually this is much better than i expected i was yeah. kind of i'd kind of i'd kind of um written off the franchise i think at this point but um oh, the campaign's still just utter guff though i've only played about three missions and like this is pretty yeah. but the the politics of call of duty my god we could do an entire episode just on the politics of call of duty it's a wonderful yeah. wonderful beast Okay. Um cool you know what we should take a quick break and then we'll come yeah. back and we're going to get into the big talking point uh, for today because what we're doing for this first four episodes is we're having it so that each of our four co-hosts are coming with a big talking point that they want to raise and they want to discuss with me and uh we want to. this gives you all of you the audience to hear a little bit more from them and also understand why you know these were the people that I wanted to be part of branching factor so yeah go take a quick break we'll be right back For even more gaming chat. Our work here on the Branching Factor podcast is made possible thanks to the good folks who support us on Patreon. As you might know, me, Tommy, the host here of the Branching Factor podcast, I run the AI and Games YouTube channel. I talk about how artificial intelligence works in video games and how AI research is empowered by the use of games and AI and Games has been supported by our Patreon community for several years now and it's thanks to them that we receive sponsorship that helps me and the team do more, including spending time with my friends right here on the Branching Factor Podcast. Supporters on Patreon get access to a whole bunch of content for the Branching Factor Podcast, you get to listen to episodes ad-free and even get to listen to them early before they go live to the wider world. Plus, you can submit questions to the team here on our Discord server, have your name read out in our producer credits, and even get bonus content that doesn't get published elsewhere. To find out how to join, head on over to patreon.com forward slash AI Games. That's Patreon. P A T R E O N.com forward slash AI and Games. And a special thanks to all of our patrons for their continued support of everything we're doing right here on Branching Factor. and we're back welcome this is once again we're here branching factor you're here in the very first episode i'm tommy he's george and in fact this is the bit this is the big moment we're going to get into the big talk george what is yeah. the subject
1: what is the thing you wanted to talk about today we're going to be having a look at the state of the industry basically uh state first episode of yeah state of play i mean the first podcast in this series coming out early in 2023 off the back of an interesting couple of years for the industry and based on everything I've been doing, though it's quite an interesting time to talk about where the industry is and, and talk about some of the big things coming down the track. For it as well or you know a lot of them are things that are kind of like currently live issues um but if, if we're kind of imagining getting kind of almost like television talk uh the big things that have been sort of percolating in the background we're starting to reach episodes eight or nine in the series so you know the conclusion is start, starting to come pretty quickly and it could could have some dramatic repercussions to the industry and just at that point someone has just buzzed my door so, do you want me to just you go do grab that? I'll go okay, grab that. Give me a Through the magic of video editing, we're going to either
0: blend all this together or I'm going to keep talking. Um, so, yeah, this is interestingly, I guess, going to be a fun coda to the fact that George has spent the last couple of years working in his position at the Head of Communications at UK. And no doubt he'll be able to speak at this at great length in a minute. But one of the big things that George has done is that as part of being part of the UKIE, he spends a lot of time at the front at them, dealing with big uh, companies, dealing with politicians. And so there's been a number of different stories that have hit across the news in the last few years in which maybe there's been interests from government to learn more. I think the loot boxes actually is a good example of that, where they're coming to the UKIE and saying, yo, we want to we get further input on that. And so George has been kind of critical to a lot of this sort of stuff. So it's just saying now that you're back with us, But this is kind of an interesting coda to like your whole experience at being at UK because you spend so much of your time like at the the forefront on a kind of business and political level within the industry here in the UK, or at least you have done until now.
1: Yeah, and you've done some brilliant jobs stalling there so naturally that I came back in being like wow just listen to this it's all going going on while I was dealing with a man trying to deliver some packages to my neighbors um but yes uh, it, it's I think it's a coda it's also a bit of a continuation because I think even though I'm kind of going broader in terms of what I'm doing in the day job because I'll be looking at a lot of what's going on in terms of tech I think games first of all is going to still be something that's Um, within my remit you know I'm going to be helping out some games businesses but I think one of the things that's really interesting is the way a lot of the things that I'm talking about here are actually examples of where games have been dragged into things by wider regulation wider political development and so I think it's almost like that example of how games whatever people in the industry are thinking about where it sits that the borders between it and the rest of the world are starting to maybe sort of permeate a bit more so you're starting to get to this point where actually games businesses can't just think of themselves as games businesses they need to think of themselves in a bigger way because that's how people outside of the industry are thinking about it so yeah that's about where right. we are uh, Where? how do we even start here where do we even where do we begin i mean i think i think probably the, the most obvious place to start is kind of where we are right now And, you know, and then what we'll do is we'll we'll go and tackle a few of like the big kind of issues that I think I've I've picked things that um, I picked things that are kind of pertinent in the UK because that's obviously what I know. That's where we are. (laughs) It's where we are. But I think that the big issues as well, they have global repercussions. I think each of them do. So, you know, we'll, we'll go and tackle it there. But I think the first thing is to kind of say where the games industry is in 2022 versus cool. just even uh 2022 2023 as it's, it's as we're yeah. sort of rolling into because it's had an interesting few years because back in 2019 i think i would describe i mean we we used to sort of internally um jokingly describe the industry at being sort of various stages of threat level, um, as if it was kind of like a sort of a military <laughs> sort of threat level system, but we did it solely through fire-based metaphors. And 2019 was was we were describing it as almost like towering inferno, because everything seemed <laughs> to be on fire. There were government, um, there was a select committee, uh, which is basically a group of MPs who who focus on digital and culture, media and sport, who really heavily criticized the industry. Um the WHO introduced something called gaming disorder into the international classification of diseases. Was that
0: 2019?
1: That was 2019. it feels like it was yesterday. First first proposed in (laughs) 2017. So that gives you a sense about how time passes. But you had that and you had other things like looking into like the corporate tax affairs of businesses. So there there was this sense of games under pressure. And then the pandemic happened and games had the kind of unique position of being the only creative industry that did okay during the pandemic i mean in terms of revenue obviously like a lot of the story has focused on the fact that the industry broke records for revenue across 2020 and 2021 yeah. um like made a lot of money because it turns out people who are stuck indoors looking for entertainment gravitate towards games and as a sort of a sector where increasingly there were service-based games. There's just a much bigger back catalogue of games that you can go and buy. Even though the number of new releases started to gently sort of dry up as we went further on through the pandemic as delays caused by production difficulties filtered on through, that alongside the the launch of a new console generation, even with things like chip shortages, just meant that the industry just, just jumped up. And so that created a lot of jobs, generated a lot of investment into games. And I think basically everything was really, really fine and dandy. And then you hit 2022 and and things are changing. So what changed in 2022 is, I mean, to be honest, it, it starts with the war in Ukraine. And that starts this whole process where across the world, you have instability, you have inflation starting to run rampantly wild because of all kinds of things that are buffeting across the economy. And You know, it's one of those things where you start there and then it's those ripple effects. The video games industry is a long way away from that particular epicenter, but you hit a point where consumers across the world start having to make decisions that are pretty fundamental in terms of how they're living their lives, which is yeah. in a lot of cases, they're having to make the decision, do I want to heat my flat or my apartment or my home, uh, or do I want to feed myself? You know, you're starting to get to like that level of decision-making and you're seeing it in the UK as well with an intense cost-of-living mm. crisis going on. Yeah, and we, so- we just
0: we just also had like this very intense uh, cold snap that hit here in the country as well, um, which has had a really negative impact as well, people were having to start thinking about actually I do need to turn the heat on. We've heard a lot I've seen a lot of stories in the press and and you know, even in our house we've been very um cautious about do we really need the heat on? How long can yeah. we keep it running on? And and I, I I say that acknowledging that I'm in a slightly better financial position than some other people. Um but we're still being mindful of it. And then suddenly this massive drop in temperatures, we were, I think, at the coldest recorded temperatures up in Scotland were something like minus 17 Celsius. People yeah. had to crank the heating on. And so that's going to have a huge impact, particularly on, well, uh, as we record this, funnily enough, as we said, we're recording this in late 2022. Christmas is just round the corner.
1: And then how is that going to impact uh, what's under the tree, I guess, at the yeah. end of the week? Exactly. It's, it's how much money do people have to spend? And the answer is this. And one of the key things is, is that having spent a lot of time and frankly money on games over the last couple of years in terms of the pandemic, people had been turning away from games a little bit more anyway this year for the understandable reason of, you know, measures are starting to relinquish, you can go out a bit more. So what's essentially happening in the background, it's not fed through yet, but it's, it's definitely happening in the background, is industry has been making less money which means businesses are feeling less optimistic, which means they're starting to hire less. You're seeing investors being a little less keen to go and put money into the sector. And then it's happening at the same time as across the wider political world, big tech, it's been getting under increasing regulatory pressure over the course of the last five years or so, especially, you know, in the light of everything that happened in terms of um, Trump and, you know, think around fake news around online safety, online harms, all of those kinds of things. And so it's happening at the same time as a big regulatory burden is about to start being added to lots and lots of businesses. And however much the aim of a lot of this regulation is always pointed at the very big companies, it always hits the smaller ones as well. So you've got this point where games is actually in a position that's much, much better than it was in 2019. And it's in a position that is higher than people were forecasting it to be by this point in time. So if you're looking at things like New Zoo's predictions for like market size, it's well above it, you know, in terms of where it is because the pandemic had an enormous effect. And if you look at where games are kind of culturally, they're probably a bit better understood And I think in general, if you look at where we were sort of 10 years ago, the industry's increased in size numerous times over. Like it's one of the fastest growing uh, and most effective growth sectors in the world. So people have recognized the value of that, but it's coming at the same time as this, big crunch in terms of cost of living in terms of what people are willing to put into businesses and then also just at the same time as people are starting to say we think these things need more regulation and when you get a bigger regulatory burden businesses have to spend more money on dealing with that they have to spend more time and effort complying because they risk things like big fines or prison sentences so it's coming into this really interesting point and in that there's been a few sort of big almost like regulatory subplots which I think will probably play quite a big role in shaping what the industry is going to look like over the next five to 10 years. And most of them are kind of coming to the boil this year because, uh, you know, especially across all kinds of different bits of the world, there's a pressure to get stuff done. So, yeah. you know, UK government's only got a couple more years to get things done. The European uh, Parliament is going to be going to the polls in May 2024. There's going to be a presidential election as well uh, within the coming years. So this stuff, it seemed miles away from the world of games, but because things like regulating big tech is high on the list of the agenda of all of these places, the next and, year and I think got it's they've got this be... like finite window essentially to get stuff done to back them for their political campaign or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Because, you know, the the big thing about politics is politics is either the fastest thing in the world, everything falls apart within one week, there's trust, Boris Johnson, you know, at the end of their their time in charge, or it's the slowest thing. And it takes years. And a lot of the things that I'm probably going to talk about are things where actually, they may well have started years ago, but they're only reaching conclusion here. So if you want to get, say, a big piece of policy done, especially in the UK, you need to basically budget two (laughs) years of time to do it. Right. So if you've not started something now, it's not getting done. And what's really interesting, you know, it's a little sort of off to the side thing before we come back to the games is almost everyone in the kind of political world at the moment, if they've got something they need to do now, they're talking to the government, if they've got something they want done in the future, they're talking to Labour. So they're going and speaking to the opposition party in the UK because they're expecting they're going to be forming the next government. So everyone is kind of abandoning this idea of, you know if there's something that's going to take that two-year window they're kind of going we're not going to talk to the government about it because we don't think they're going to be around in two years so instead we're talking to the other lot so interesting interesting side hustle there as well
0: Yeah. okay as not something i'd thought of and i, I guess this is also interesting <clears throat> given from a more public facing perspective there's only a handful of stories that really kind of get into this that I'm, I'd say that maybe the games media has taken an active interest in. You know, certainly the Microsoft Activision Blizzard King um, merger, I think is certainly one big story. But even like uh, just this week, it was at the FTC of just just fined um, Epic Games half a billion dollars uh, for failing to adhere to. uh, I think it was basically um, over allegations of how they've handled the use of data of miners and yeah. potential exploitation of them in terms of monetization frameworks in Fortnite.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think that actually probably leads into one of the three points. So I'll go and tackle oh, uh, let's online. It. Let's go and tackle that kind of online safety point because you're right. I mean, so essentially, yes, uh, Epic was fined uh, a pretty record amount, actually, like $520 million, um for basically breaching things in regards to copper, which is essentially the the child protection stuff in the US in terms of data protection. And, And there were two big things that they ended up getting done for, which was one, they were not getting, say, explicit parental permission uh, for children in this case in the us is defined basically as people who are under the age of 13 um, to get accounts basically that was that was the first thing and then the second thing was this perception of the use of things that are called dark patterns so you know things in the background that maybe manipulate you into doing things to go and buy something you know that's yeah. what epic essentially uh, has gotten done for and i think this is really interesting in terms of what this means for the industry, ju- just for sort of a couple of reasons. So the first one is, is that this is part of a big thing that's going on around the world in terms of online safety and especially aimed at young people. So in the US, they, they've they got copper and that's their big framework. But in the UK, we've got this thing called the Online Safety Bill that's been trying to sort of meander its, its been, way it's been through Parliament for, around for a years. while now, hasn't it? Yeah, that's it, and it, it's come back up the agenda. But the, the whole thing is is that when you look at what's going on in the US, what's going on where we are, what's gone on in terms of the EU in terms of what they've done around things like GDPR and various things there, and what's going on in terms of even like some of like Australia, like they've got a very active safety commissioner. There's an element of the Helen Lovejoy. Will somebody please think of the children? about this right but there is also actually a fairly strong element around there is concern around the level of harm that can be done online this is about providing a deeper set of responsibilities for businesses in terms of taking down harmful content making sure that users of the right age are accessing content in the right ways so you know if you're not of the right age you're not able to get a hold of it and ultimately making it easier to deal with various things like building basically methods for like recourse or essentially if something goes wrong, you can get it fixed more easily. Um, now, the biggest reason why this is really important is because it started out as something that was just aimed pretty much, this was just going to touch big big tech, You know, it was going to touch the biggest social media companies and that's it. And if you see people talking about these kinds of things, they still talk about it in that sense. But the reality is, when you look at the way all of the law is almost always written around these things or the way that services are defined, they talk about services that allow communication and services that allow the creation of user generated content provided they're doing it online they're almost certainly falling into the online safety bill and a lot of the kind of equivalent things that are happening around the world now what things allow for communication (laughs) and often have user generated content the answer is video video games and so the, the biggest thing that's really important about this is just it means first of all they will fall within the scope of this so it means that if depending upon where the law goes, because there, there are kind of different categories, at the very least, companies are going to have to follow the rules here. Like they're going to have to do that because otherwise they're going to be putting themselves at risk of massive fines, similar to the kinds of thing that you could see coming out in terms of Epic. Um, but in terms of where it can end up, because online games are kind of increasingly being sort of identified as, if social media is the one that we were going for, big online games with, you know huge lobbies and things like that that's the next thing that people kind of obviously look at and go that's where young people are hanging out in the uk there's kind of there's going to be like two categories around these things and you're going to get landed in one of two of them if you end up with the wrong one you're going to have the point where people who are senior within your business may end up with criminal liability so if oh, geez, something goes wrong right? uh, some people may go to prison so suddenly you end up in this place where for most games businesses and most games companies, you're not going to be too worried about this because almost always a lot of this stuff is handled at a platform level, right? Yeah. You know, it's like it's being handled by all of the various different companies who are running all of the chat functionalities for all of their system, or it's over somewhere like discord, right? Which has a separate thing. It's as a company is choosing to operate like that, but it just means that if you are an independent business and you do have an online game and you do any form of, in-game chat yourself you're suddenly going to have to go and make sure you've got the right kind of legal coverage for this you're going to have to make sure that you're really on top of these kinds of things because it is increasingly becoming like a flashpoint around the world is basically finding platforms where bad actors are allowed to operate where horrible things are going to happen and you know you may have seen like recently in the US that stuff about um, far right groups about, you about know, their perceived increased usage of online games as kind of like recruiting grounds or spaces where they can go and you know use this as a place yeah. to go and bring mm-hmm. people and take them mm-hmm. into other spaces. All of this is basically building into a sense that online games are being considered as one of the town squares or one of the sort of public playgrounds of the digital future. And games businesses are no longer going to be able to just say, well, it's the open internet, it exists, you do these things. There is going to be an expectation you're going to have to police those spaces, and so
0: so when it comes to policing the spaces, is, is, yeah. we, is the expectation that it is proactive or or reactive or a combination of the two? So sort of building tools and systems to catch this stuff before it happens, but also ensuring that they have proper policies in place for like reporting bad actors and then acting acting on that. I mean, I guess there, there is there's already a certain amount of that that tends to exist in in platforms, yeah. so like Xbox, PlayStation have that to a certain extent but i'm assuming that this is going to have to be even more thorough and even on
1: an individual title basis as well as just on the platform basis i I think that the the biggest element to it is and i I think actually you've you've summarized it a really important point there is one of the things that's interesting about the industry is that this probably changes like the emphasis of their responsibility towards being much more you've got a legal responsibility to do this thing so you better get on with it but i think because of the fact that games naturally have lots of young players lots of a a desire to try and create as nice an atmosphere of play as possible because ultimately you want more people to play you're right to say that actually they have done both a lot of the proactive and reactive stuff that this law is going to require this body of law is basically focusing around harms and what you can do in terms of illegal content so things around uh, racism things around child sexual exploitation things around terrorism so these are things that These are things that businesses kind of already should be planning for, to be totally honest, or should at least have a sort of a sense of what they're doing in these (laughs) online spaces. But it's basically doubling down on those things. And the biggest thing about it is that what it's essentially challenging businesses to do is to be better at everything that they're doing in regards to it so if something gets through the expectation is to get it down as quickly as possible like it's not one of those things where uh, we will review your request within five working days like if it is something within these levels of harm it is more how are we getting this down within a couple of hours like it's moving much more towards that kind of kind of emphasis and similarly like in advance you know, part of what's happened in the UK, so it's happened within data protection, but it actually kind of leads quite nicely into the online safety stuff. There's something that's called the age-appropriate design code from the Information Commissioner's Office, which was all about encouraging digital businesses to change how they deal with data protection stuff if it's about young players or young people involved in a service. And so businesses since that's rolled out they have to have policies in place that basically makes it easier to communicate so instead of chucking at a child 23 pages of text and saying (laughs) read this agreement you have to you know try and write it in language that they're going to understand present it to them in a way that's going to be reasonable for a child to potentially go and deal with so it's going to be a bit of both so it's that expectation of setting it up in advance more successfully so that you've got the kind of right proactive things in place to try and avoid as much of this as possible and then being as strongly reactive as you can be um but yes this is this is coming down the track and it's coming in into force across this year basically so it's going to be it won't immediately come into force there'll be a period of you know essentially um implementation so you know businesses will have some time to actually get I around to, figure to it, out it
0: and put it in practice and what have you
1: yeah, exactly. But you know, it, it, there's there's been the potential around this. Um, you know, there was a brief period where the government tried to, in the UK, on this stuff, tried to bring in an idea around legal but harmful. So this idea was just people saying nasty stuff in games um, or nasty stuff online might get covered under this. And they moved away from it because they realized they couldn't define it. And equally, they might do some more tighter stuff around age verification um, or try to do more tighter stuff around there. One of the things that Epic's done in response to this massive fine from Copper is create this new thing called Cabin accounts, where... Any parent who declares that their child is of a certain age gets put into these cabined accounts that lets them play. But if they want to do things like activating game purchasing and do other kinds of things, they have to basically get parental permission via almost like a sort of a two-factor authorization kind of thing where an email is sent to the parents, the parents look at it, the parents then go, yes or no. So, (laughs) I think what you're going to see is a big change in those kinds of things and those kinds of sort of account level elements. Um, But I think mostly what it just means for businesses is they're going to have to think if you've got this kind of functionality or if you're looking to have a kind of a chat functionality or anything within your game, if it's not being done at a platform level, it's not being done in a sort of a secondary social network you're gonna have to think really carefully about this.
0: Like Fortnite is a really interesting example as well, because a lot of those, what you just described there was like this idea of having these partitioned isolated accounts that they're having to request permission in order to do certain things. These are things that already exist in um, a lot of the parental control uh, tools that are available on PlayStation, on Xbox, on Nintendo Switch, but Fortnite is so big and it exists outside of those platforms as well. You've got kids who are playing Fortnite on their phone. You've got people that yeah. are playing it on their uh, their their PC, laptop, whatever. Like, there's all these different devices you can play the game on, and so it's became so big. They're having to think about all these all these issues that the platform holders are typically having to take responsibility for. And like, oh, we need to implement that now, yeah. and it makes sense because fundamentally, um, you know, kids are kids are smart. Kids will figure this out, and kids are tend to be more tech-savvy than their parents as well. Mm-hmm. So if you figure out, well, oh, hang on a minute, I'm I'm blocked from doing this on the Xbox account because the parental controls are set up. If I just download Fortnite onto my phone.
1: Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, and what was interesting in, in terms of Epic's response to this, uh, you know, I think, I can't remember, I mean, this is slightly paraphrasing, but almost the line was, no business sets out to be in this position. You know, like they did not want to end up here. But one of the things that they admitted was just, it was almost like they admitted that the size of the platform that Fortnite is now is way beyond what they ever thought it was going to be and and way beyond where they ever thought it needed to be. And what's happened is, as it's grown, their responsibilities have grown in terms of what, what's expected of them. Yeah. Most importantly as well, alongside it, regulators have gotten more aggressive. So the FTC willing to go after mm-hmm. this, and you know I'll, I'll come back to this one when, when I talk about a bit more about the competition stuff around um, Xbox and um, ABK and everything, is that there was a sense amongst regulators that they let big tech kind of rule the roost a little bit over the last decade too much, and that they need to push much, much harder against them. And I think what's happening is, because big tech in a, in a lot of senses have kind of consolidated their position they're maybe under more threat at the moment than they've ever been before but they've still got a very strong impregnable position they're kind of able to defend themselves and as long as they don't do anything new no one can go after them whereas with games businesses it's like you know they're potentially growing in scale they're potentially trying to do new things because the, the sector's is still growing it's become a place for regulators to go we're going to make you the target for this. We're going to see how you hold up against it. And I think in a lot of cases, the industry does its best. And I think genuinely is motivated to do the good things, but maybe because it is not quite the size and scale of these massive, enormous companies. I think there's that tendency or, you know, something like Fortnite, for example, it's enormous, but it's always about remembering, was it ever their core business? Like it's become their core Mm, business, but it wasn't where they started. So they might have a lot of expertise in developing the game, but they probably don't have the corporate expertise in terms of managing this kind of thing, which they're learning fast. And they've uh, learned a very hard lesson about that, that 520 million fine. But speaking of that fine, are they appealing that in any way? Or or have they, have they actually just said, no, no, you're, we're, we're we're in the wrong here and we're going to make good. Yeah. That's essentially what they did. And so when they announced, what was interesting is they announced the cabined accounts about a week before this ruling came through. So they, they knew had they'd an lost. Idea. Yeah. yeah. So they knew they'd lost. And what they did was they they launched something ahead of time to try and basically soften the blow of it. So that, that's what you do in comms. It's, 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 it's this is kind of yeah. shenanigans that well, you get involved in.
0: Good for you if you can kind of swallow a $520 million fine. That's not bad.
1: Yeah. Um, it's not too bad. And, and you know, it's, it's worth remembering that these kinds of fines, they tend to be sort of, it's 10 to 20% of turnover ends up being right. kind of these kind of fines. So, um, you know, it's a chunk of change. And, you know, obviously they're going to be pleased to get it. But I think what's interesting is it actually kind of leads, you know, if, if managing these kinds of things about parental permission and how that works in the online world and working out what the age of players are and how you protect them. You mentioned the parental control stuff, and that actually comes quite nicely into loot boxes so, which is so this was
0: actually going to be my segue here because one of the um particular most egregious examples i can think of in recent years is how so many games are getting away with going through uh their ratings process um, and i'm going to point specifically at Activision and EA where they will release a game in its current form and it's generally fine because a lot of the in-game monetization and things like loot boxes and of similar natures aren't deployed at launch yeah. and then subsequently they're soft they're like um, updated uh, afterwards yeah. so it doesn't get caught in their press it doesn't get caught in the the rating process for the game itself and it's actually yeah. going through certification and also getting its actual rating for um being available to consumers like that seems to me like another like a gaping flaw in kind of protecting players not to mention the um, the rest of loot boxes as a whole yeah. so is i mean you were part of that if i remember right when the, the uk government came forward and wanted to have their big discussion on loot boxes you were part of the team that responded to it right
1: Yep, I was. I, I even ran the um, the publicity campaign. The government has basically cited as kind of like best practice and as big part of the solution to this problem. But so on, on the first point, so those businesses have stopped doing that because um, Peggy's introduced uh, a new indicator into its rating system called the paid random item indicator. So. Mm-hmm according to basically the Peggy Code of Conduct, when you are submitting games for rating, you have to include information like that during the process. And you you have to include it, especially if you've got loot boxes in your games. If you do not include it, the Peggy Code of Conduct allows Peggy to issue fines against you and kick you out of Peggy, which means if you can't, go through Peggy you can't get your games rated in Europe so you can't release there so the industry agreed that as a kind of a voluntary measure in response to what had gone on with loot boxes because the, the biggest what the biggest way to summarize what's been going on with loot boxes over the last five years is that it has turned it into a quagmire so we've ended up in a position where some companies within the industry are pretty reliant upon the model or have a, a large amount of skin in the game and obviously yeah. fighting very hard upon it Most companies in the industry don't care or have actively been trying to um, drop loot boxes very, very quickly. And you'll see that there are a number of big publishers who've made commitments over the last few years to drop loot boxes and have just cleared them out of their games. You will see big things like Overwatch 2 did not have loot boxes. Ubisoft has dropped loot boxes from all of its games that aren't 18 rated. Jagex has killed loot boxes in RuneScape. So they're all kind of ditching them but they're aware that one of the classic problems with when a government looks into something like this and tries to regulate is that governments are bad at regulating games generally speaking because they often don't understand them and so you end up heavily over regulated more often yes and so you have this risk which they can see which is just the regulation around loot boxes if badly done just becomes regulation of all in-game purchases because the whole thing that and this is one of the really sort of defining things about buying loot boxes is that you almost never buy a loot box you almost always buy an in-game currency and then the in-game currency is used to purchase the loot box because the reason why that happens is because people can then unlock loot boxes through play you know they can grind and they can get the currency and so that creates this entire thing where and this is where government enters the sort of the pain in the ass element of this. And they start getting to the quagmire themselves. There's an enormous amount of outcry around loot boxes. There's an enormous amount of easy sort of cross party political annoyance about this. And there's a sense that something must be done. But at the same time, whenever they've looked into what must the thing be that's done, regulation has always looked like it is a massive pain because Actually working out which games have loot boxes in them and which ones would be following sort of regulatory practices in regards to them, it requires a lot of people doing a lot of very granular detective work looking into games because there's no simple here's loot boxes and they're coded in line of code you can look for, or here's a switch that says this game definitely contains loot boxes. Because even if it says it contains them, the thing you have to do is look at all the games that say they don't contain them and find the ones that do. So you need like the a, ones breaking the
0: rules. You're kind of needing like a formal definition that's legally binding. Yes. Or it can stand up
1: in a court of law where it's yes. like,
0: yes, that is according to the law, that is a loot box.
1: Exactly. You need, that's what a loot box is. Here are the things that we're willing to accept or not accept in regards to it in terms of law. And here is the body who's going to enforce those things if it happens. And what happened was, you know, government was like looking at all of these things. And but before you even get to that point, policymakers are going, What's the evidence right around this? What's the evidence of harm in regards to this? Because policy is about not saying that we're going to remove all harm from society. It's about saying we think that there's enough harm here that regulation is the most appropriate tool for using this. Because sometimes, and a lot of the time, the government does this in all other kinds of sectors, where they go, there's not really a problem here, but there is a problem perception-wise, fix it for us or else. We'll go and do that. And that's essentially where we've landed with loot boxes because the government did this massive call for evidence process. It got 30,000 players submitting their thoughts about loot boxes. It received dozens of papers from academics. It received all kinds of submissions from all kinds of places. And despite that massive weight of stuff, almost all of it was negative, they weren't able to conclude that there was a definitive link between loot boxes and harm. They basically said at most there was a correlation that showed People who spend a lot of money on gambling spend a lot of money on loot boxes. But that same research also showed that people who spend a lot of money on gambling spend a lot of money on sport, on food, on other things, because they're bad with money. It's it's one of those things where it's like, and so government was sitting there being like, we've got a problem here. People are demanding action. If we don't do anything, we're going to get slaughtered. We don't have enough evidence for action. So we don't feel like we're in a great place to go forwards to it. And that we're doing it at the same time when there's no money in the public coffers, do anything. <laughs> so no regulators want to touch it. Um, and especially not like the Gambling Commission, because, you know, this is one of the things people always come back to me and say loot boxes are gambling. And it's like Gambling Commission's looked at it three times and they've said that every single time they've said it's not. Um, European gambling regulators have pretty much said the same thing. Netherlands rolled back theirs at the beginning of this year. And the only outlier left is Belgium, which, fun fact, the guy who was the head of gambling commission in Belgium at the time uh, is now currently serving a suspended prison sentence for hacking the European Commission. Um, because <laughs> he, uh, yeah, that's it. Wild <laughs> stories. Um, but so what's oh. happened is basically <clears throat> there's a problem, but it's mostly about, mostly it's about public perception of a failure of the industry to go and deal with some of the stuff that actually epic was talked about which was you've not got enough control over what kids are doing and also we don't know how they're being encouraged into spending so the and big i things guess happen-
0: i guess the same thing then applies to you know there are people that are are vulnerable when it comes yeah. to these kind of predatory practices who aren't children like the you know, yeah. particularly the loot boxes i think was you know we're dealing with adults at this point like they say there's, there's people with gambling addictions but also there's just A lot of it is quite predatory, and for a lot of people who are not very great with money, or for one reason or another, that can lead them into very difficult um, situations—physical, mental, um, pain, or, or you know, issues um, with their health as a result of that. And so, yeah, it's kind of this is a broader thing, I guess, not just protecting, not just thinking of the children, but actually just thinking about how to better protect people as a whole and, and giving them the. I guess it's it's
1: allowing them to make the safe to make the decision themselves in a safe way. Yeah, arguably. And, yeah, exactly, and because that's <clears> lining up to basically the sort of the window of like how have how have we taken all of that quagmire and eventually sort of managing to cl- clamber through a window to get to the other side of this, and what's happened is basically the industry came back to government and said the following things: first of all, a bit like the epic stuff, we can do more in printer controls because printer controls actually especially because almost all of these concerns, I'd say like 90% are around children and parental permission and actually putting in place the controls and things to stop this. That's kind of first step step to it. Second thing was around public information and education. You know, the campaigns that I was running at UK were actually quite effective in reaching parents and, and doing two things, which was telling them, here's the stuff that's going on. But actually we know that you don't need like a super games focused explanation of them. You just need help with your parenting, just some advice and tips on how to manage stuff in the digital world because you're probably not going to be happy if your seven-year-old's spending on loot boxes, but you're probably fine if your 16-year-old does. So how do you set rules yeah. around that? How do you work those things out? Um, and then the, the final thing that actually we did as well was, was commit to this idea of creating an academic research framework around video games. So it's the only thing that exists in the world of its kind. It'll be the first first thing ever created where games companies will be able to contribute their data, essentially, confidentially into this framework so academics can look at it to go and do research around it because you know the government's wanting to be able to investigate this stuff more I mean, credibly that's, uh, in the future
0: uh, having having been on the other side of that before like that's yeah. a huge win as well because yeah. more than m- on multiple occasions i almost did some work i actually I did do some work with yeah. games companies while i was in an academic space but one of the biggest problems we often faced was the the red tape around yeah. getting access to data and yeah what the state of that data was, how clean that data was, and also ensuring yep. it was adhering to GDPR regulations. Well, they weren't GDPR at the
1: time, but it is now. But yeah, that
0: sounds huge
1: to me. Yeah, and and that that's <clears throat> basically it. It's basically the government has said, look, we're going to give you some time to work on this. They, they said this last July when they published a the call for evidence. The industry's got about, I think, it, it's going to be the end of the first quarter in 2023 is that they're meant to be providing an update on how they're doing on developing better parental controls diverse public information campaigns and getting Mm. towards that research framework and essentially the rest of the world is kind of looking at this now because i think most regulators around the world have said this is a real pain for us to regulate because we don't feel like it hits the threshold of harm and it's very common story around the, the world it doesn't actually have the evidential threshold of harm, but it has the public perception threshold of harm. So that means we have to do something because otherwise we're perceived to be weak or not dealing with an issue. But at the same time, we realise that there are, if you look across all platforms, hundreds of thousands of games available. And if you suddenly then have to basically task a regulatory team to go through that, you suddenly have a sky high cost for regulating something that you're not really sure is a problem in terms of the traditional sense of, you know, cigarettes are bad, therefore they should be 18 rated or in the case of New Zealand being phased out completely. There's not like that level of harm, you know, however much some pressure groups were talking after the uh, gaming disorder stuff was done with the WHO games are not crack cane, like games have their problems, but they are fine broadly speaking. So that's where the government kind of lands on these things. So yeah, so that's, that's kind of loot boxes and that's, and the UK is going to be pretty much it's watch what happens in the UK, because I think the rest of the world will probably start following that because that's going to be the kind of likely to be like a framework for an answer on this, that people can go, that feels like it actually quite robustly solves the problem, but does so in a way that government doesn't end up in a in its own quagmire on it. So,
0: yeah,
1: yeah that's been like four years of my life. That's been fun.
0: Mm, I, I'm quite, this is, I guess this is going to be an interesting year. Um, As you say, like, the, you know, the industry in this country is going to have to step forward and pr- propose something that yeah. is addressing this. At the same time, I'll be interested to see how specific uh, publishers and um, are handling this with regards to individual titles and you know like you said like there has been a a gradual you know there has been a a broader shift away from loot boxes as a whole um a lot of games have moved away from it entirely they're going for other monetization traps or frameworks or whatever patterns um you know uh, but interestingly fifa or actually It'll be, what is it, EA Sports FC, I think it's going to be yep. called, in 2023, because now FIFA and EA have fell out with each other. That's yep. a game that has, they've stood their ground and they've dug their heels in. All, yes. Well, all this has gone on because those because the Ultimate Team packs make them a ton of money. Yep. I'd be interested to see if this is an opportunity for them to reevaluate how Ultimate Team works and do something a bit different, or if That's they're going to stick their ground.
1: I mean, yeah. what what do you think? Honestly, I'm not sure. I, I think one of the things about that deal with FIFA in terms of a licensing agreement is that I know, you know, it wasn't publicly available, but I, I'd seen in terms of reporting around it that there were certain stipulations around how the commercial side of it worked, which did limit to some extent the flexibility you would have in terms of making money off that product. Right. Um, what I would say is so I think there's probably room for greater flexibility. But then I think, you know, and this is this is one of the sort of challenging things in terms of talking about the, the loot box argument there is it's popular. Very people popular. spending a, people are spending a lot of money. And it's it's not likely to be just a very small portion of people who are wildly spending out of control because they're unhappy or anything going on in their lives. Ultimate team is culturally exceptionally popular. And it's- I think in terms of as well, it's like where it fits in the framework, it's that sort of sense of not quite sticker albums. But I think one of the things I I've, I've always sort of tried to say when whenever it's come up or someone's discussed this with me is it's like it's a bit like Magic the Gathering with football players, right? That's yeah. that's essentially what the model is. And it's a deck builder. So in that context, it makes sense. And that's been their argument throughout. And I think the biggest thing has been that at least EA, I think, has appreciated the challenges around it. So they've got things like their parental dashboard in the game now where you can monitor things like how many loot boxes are being opened, spend, and all of those kinds of things. They've invested in their own campaigns around it. They've actually developed an entire new part of their business, um, which was basically, um, you know, it's basically player safety and responsibility. They've got an entire team that's dedicated to it now off the back of this stuff happening. Um, So I think it's one of those things where they have taken steps but they are also aware they're a commercial business. You know, they're looking at, yeah. at where their bottom line is. But I think overall that point around loot boxes, I think, and a lot of companies moving away from it, it sort of underlines about why it's actually a bad idea for government to regulate loot boxes, is that the industry does tend to naturally respond to what goes on with business models. Like if players don't like it, they ditch it. And ever since Battlefront 2 basically um, poisoned the well, most companies have been ditching loot boxes pretty yeah. seriously. So instead, if you've got concerns around things like monetization, you need to look at principles. You need to look at things that are more about how do businesses conduct themselves rather than what specific tactics they use. Because if you're go always going for the tactics... They'll work around it. They'll
0: find an alternative.
1: They, they will switch approach because they'll go, the tactic's not worth pursuing because it's about to get regulated. And by the time the three-year, four-year process is concluded, most people have moved away from it. So you've got a piece of legislation that's not doing anything. So that's my one tip. That's my one tip for regulators. Mm-hmm. Any any budding regulators out there any listening. Any
0: budding regulators listening to our brand new shiny podcast.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, you're in the right spot. Well done. Exactly. And that leads probably into the final mm-hmm. one, which is about this competition stuff. And this is probably, you know, um, after having promised that I was going to keep this nice and tight and short for you, Tommy, I've managed to uh, yeah. witter on, witter on. Um but I think the, the biggest thing is about looking at this investigation into Microsoft and ABKs, um into the purchase basically of Activision yes. Blizzard case. Which is
0: been a long going that's it's been an int- it's been interesting to see games journalists or, or or just gaming journalism, like gaming news websites and what have you, latch onto this. Um yeah. Particularly, there's a lot of you know uh, favoritism and people, people, people latch on their their appeal to products and companies and what have you, not looking at it from the broader uh, outlook. But I'll be interested to see what your thoughts are on this because I've I've been quite bemused by some parts of the conversation around this as it's as it's rolled out.
1: Yeah, I think it's. I mean, I think it's really. First of all, it is really interesting. Um, the biggest reason is, is that actually this is the biggest deal in tech history. So, you know, this is essentially, so 67 billion valuation for um, ABK. Someone that's ish. more than, that's more than Twitter. Uh, it's more than Elon Musk bought Twitter for. Um, so, so this is, this is the biggest acquisition in tech history. And so I think it actually is relatively sensible for competition regulators to go and have mm-hmm. a look at it. Yeah. Now, I think what's the problem about it is, and so this is going back to this sense of like big tech causing problems with games. So big tech made a load of acquisitions over the last decade or so. Um, those, those, those big unpopular tech companies who people you know tend to sort of jump upon as saying, Oh, you know, not great fan of this company. It's done this or that or the other. Um, mm. Because of the fact that they were not intensely challenged when they were making those purchases when they were going ahead and doing the kinds of things that you know going and adding those parts of their businesses there was a lot of criticism of competition regulators for not being active enough right and so what you've now got instead is um you know so i think one of the things that the ftc's been described as is activist is essentially it's like they're now going after anything that's big because they want to go after something that's big because they, they need to sort of- they need to show
0: because they didn't, yeah. they didn't do anything with
1: regards to Microsoft's purchase. I mean, Bethesda is nothing um, right.
0: ultimately in comparison to this, but yeah. nobody batted an eyelid at that.
1: No, and I, I think that's that's the thing is that the biggest thing that changed is like so. First of all, scale of this deal deal is enormous, which I think is is one thing. But then I think the other thing is just it's that historic failure and i think especially with what's been sort of going on in terms of like the ftc under lena khan and in terms of the cma just in the uk there's been a sense of we've got to intervene on something so they've picked this and the arguments they've put forward it differs a bit from country to country yeah but almost always it tends to focus on this idea that microsoft in doing this will get call of duty and will lock <clears throat> rivals out of the market um that they will probably do this in a way that will build them a lead in terms of their subscription services you know and looking towards things like game pass yeah and then this idea of them also potentially dominating like the cloud gaming space because there's, there's not really competitors there um i think what's really interesting is that if you go and read around the cases you go and read around the commentary around the cases um especially like uh, i mean there's a good piece in gi biz actually about the ftc they're pretty weak like if you look at the remit of what these people are actually looking at the general consensus is they're facing quite an uphill battle on these to actually win the case so that the ftc suing uh microsoft abk the consensus is that it's going to be difficult on the basis that you know the first the first thing is is basically Microsoft are far from being and, and through Xbox being the dominant player in the market they're one of the big players yes but in most territories they are second usually third you know when they sit quite far behind now I think they're going to really struggle uh, in terms of regulators one of their big struggles is actually to argue that getting Call of Duty will immediately shift that in such a way that they would not just become the leader within the market, but would develop a monopolistic position. Right. And and
0: that was certainly the thing that I found quite amusing about, or bemusing, I guess, about the whole situation is reading into this and it's like, look, I totally acknowledge Call of Duty is a huge popular franchise, a very popular IP. Can, we've just seen Modern Warfare 2 as the best selling of that yeah. series. In, since the last modern warfare series yeah. however call of duty is not all that and no. i think fundamentally if 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 microsoft tried to buy activision a decade ago i could see the i could see this collapsing very quickly yeah. because the impact of call of duty on the industry at that point in particular yeah. was massive and also, at that point, if we, if of course if we recall correctly, the Xbox was the dominant platform in the likes of the US yeah. and and in Europe also, because a lot of people aligned Call of Duty with Xbox, and if you wanted to play the new Call of Duty games, you played them on the Xbox 360. That yes. is no longer the case, and particularly also because they had a marketing agreement with, they had a marketing and exclusivity agreement with that division. That's why certain things came to, to Xbox a couple of days early. Yeah. And also whenever they advertised the new Call of Duty, it was like, you know, buy Call of Duty, whatever, on Xbox. Whereas now it's on PlayStation. But I think, not getting into the particular Xbox PlayStation argument, but even just the state of the the market has changed so drastically with free-to-play economies, with mobile economies, with the size of the industry as a whole, that Call of Duty, yes, it is massive, but Call of Duty is at no point that big a deal in the grand scheme of things anymore yeah. and you know an, an easy argument to make is nintendo seemed to be doing just fine without it and nintendo yeah. haven't had a call of duty since of the wii u i think they had yeah.
1: ghosts was on the wii u if i
0: remember right
1: no exactly but, um and yeah as a, as a side effects <clears throat> of, of what's been going on because regulators have latched onto call of duty because you know it, it goes to one of the things that i think is a challenge in terms of the perception of games so i've talked about those big tech companies i think there's almost what i would call inverted commas like big games fifa fortnite cod and it's like people believe that's all that video games is and they don't understand that there are competitors to those games they don't understand that there's just a whole litany of games that just aren't those games that people are playing because they dominate the the debate so much and sony i think in terms of their arguments to regulators they were really heavily majoring on call of duty i think kind of leaning into that but the, the the big thing is that first of all in response to a lot of this, Microsoft's been making offers to counterbalance concerns. So they've got yeah. a load of basically now 10-year deals on the table in terms of let's do some stuff with giving it, giving PlayStation the opportunity to put it on their subscription service, not just on their console, but on their subscription service for the next 10 years. And also offering a similar thing to Steam, but Steam were like, well, it's fine. You know, we know. Yeah, we know you're I saw going that.
0: that. <laughs> we didn't um, need this. You guys are good whenever you... When You always make good on your promises, I believe, is the phrase.
1: Exactly. And, and the key thing there is basically just to go, okay, so we were actually giving you enough time to plan your business around replacing this, which was pretty reasonable. But I think one of the biggest things that is kind of coming through, and it came through in a paper that someone submitted to CMA anonymously to support um, Microsoft, was they were essentially making the point that the two companies are pursuing quite different strategies, and actually, Microsoft's strategy is not necessarily about stopping Call of Duty yet, being on PlayStations. The question is, they want to probably deploy it via Game Pass at some point. Like that's, yes. I think, what their strategy is. They want to bring down the walls between devices so you can ultimately in the future have Game Pass and it works across whichever device or context you choose to play. Yeah. Whereas Sony is still very much, here is our hardware, here are first party titles, and here are the b- other big titles that draw people to buy our console, and they've got a very One of much traditional which model. Is Call of Duty, um, yeah, and and they are relying upon the fact that that's their model, and they're relying a bit upon the fact that Microsoft is a bam off compared to Sony to basically use that as a kind of like you need to defend us uh, from this. So I, I kind of feel like it's, it's an interesting place because I do think there are some relevant concerns around Game Pass. And, you know, in terms of the fact that it's already hoovering up much of the market and there doesn't seem to be much competition, there might be some relevant concerns as well around cloud because, you know, there isn't really a competitor. And as, as a delivery mechanism, again, Game Pass builds on that. But I think ultimately what's happening here is actually a fairly weak argument is being used to... I think it's being basically, this is an opportunity to to make an argument against big tech companies, try and stop them in their tracks or something like that. And that's regulators going, we really need to intervene on this. And they've not actually looked at it and gone, is this strong enough? Does this so, actually hold, hold up?
0: Because because funnily enough, the thing that I keep thinking about looking at this deal that nobody's that none of these regulators ever seem to bring up is they're trying to buy King. Yeah. And that to me is the big one. Blizzard but, doesn't yeah. even factor into this. Blizzard is... Ultimately, nothing. I think in the scope, yep. scope of this, they're buying um, Call of Duty. Sure, they're buying the biggest mobile gaming comp one of the bo- biggest bo- mobile gaming companies in the world, and it's going to cement yep. their position in the mobile market in a way that nothing else is.
1: Yeah, they've not got any presence realistically at mobile at all, and that's yeah. that's the that's the reason why they're making this purchase. And and ultimately, that's probably more of the reason they're doing it. Funnily enough, than Call of Duty to some extent, which sounds like an insane thing to say, but I mean, look at it and just go that King you know, just through Candy Crush alone is generating a billion a year and it's done so consistently for a decade and it has a completely different demographic, a completely different audience and it's increased the audience of people who play games by tens of millions in every territory of a note, quite frankly. So that's kind of what they're doing there. But so uh, ultimately the, the big thing is, I've obviously got my scepticism, but it's been yeah. investigated by regulators. They are taking on board with their evidence. I think the big thing is it may or may not happen this year. I think it's going to sort of definitely trundle on through this year. Is I think you'll get to the point where they, they make a decision about whether or not it's going to go ahead. Um, I mean, I think that's going to be really interesting because if it does go ahead, um, you know, obviously it's just a major deal for the, for the industry and it's, it's got those kinds of things. If it doesn't, it's also and and this is part of the reason why I was was interested to see that Sony did decide to kind of try and push against it is I think it does have a real repercussion in terms of potentially slowing down that acquisitions and consolidation across the whole market, because people are suddenly like, well, can we make these moves? Can we do this? Because is this going to be a, and I think, you know, one of the reasons why I was kind of surprised that they did get into this um, to some extent was just, they line themselves up for a point where if they try and do something down the line where they get, some massive investment from some sovereign wealth fund or some enormous tech business based, based out of Asia to go and bump up Sony's money even further, then might, they might end up in a position where they can't make these kinds of acquisitions themselves um, because, you know, they, they might end up having this point where regulators feel like they should intervene on these kinds of things mm-hmm. and step in. So yeah, I think that's that's the third and big final thing that's gonna be going on this year. So it's it, one to watch out for. It's
0: also a weird one as well, because like Sony are what well, they're acquiring Bungie. And yes. so they're running risk of placing even greater exposure on their own acquisition yeah. for that company, which sure Destiny Destiny two and, and, and other Bungie products aren't of the same magnitude as Call of Duty, yeah. but they're still big enough that yeah. you're you're placing undue attention on that and and it's interesting to see them going through that acquisition because that's also seemed like a reaction to the changes in the market that live service games are an increasingly pervasive thing they tend to be multi-platform cross-platform and as you say sony have been very particular about defending their hardware their platforms the sudden move to them now releasing a lot of their their first party games on pc is not shouldn't be a surprise to anyone at this point they're now concerned that yeah. particularly Xbox's
1: strategy is actually working yeah and I think you made the point about Bethesda earlier I think that's very similar in terms of what, what's happening with Bungie as well and I think it's noticeable that when Bethesda came through it was a big deal yep. but it did kind of go people went mm, oh, oh wow and then huh, like, okay. oh all right yeah that's it it's like and you know obviously Deathloop then still releases as a PS5 timed exclusive for a yep. year right and I think this is it is that I think What will be interesting will be as I think Microsoft's philosophy is much more open and Sony's is more closed, I think, in terms of the way they view their platforms. So I think that's where this will get quite interesting because it's going to be part of how they're going to get through this or or not get through this will be about the extent to which regulators accept that's actually what they're doing. Um, But it's also just going to be interesting to see as well as a very final point about whether there is a schism between the big three who are looking at this which is you know i mean the eu's looking at it the cma in the uk and the ftc in the us so competitions market authority and the the federal trade commission and it's like what would be interesting is if any one of them dissent because then it's suddenly like oh right okay because if you suddenly approved it in two of those territories but not in the other one you know, it's going to open up some interesting conversations, that's for sure. Um, but I, I feel like probably at the moment, there's a sense of, I think it's, uh, there's quite a lot of sabre rattling going on from regulators here. And I think they want to win some concessions. And I think when they do, they'll probably go, jobs are good. So, especially because in the US as well, there's there's the um, interesting side of one of the... Um, leading unions who are involved in some of the stuff around Activision Blizzard actively coming out and saying, we want this acquisition to happen because we think that this will be better for workers at Activision Blizzard mm. because Microsoft and Xbox have a nicer cult- culture essentially. And so you've got this weird thing where a group who would not normally intervene in a major corporate acquisition conversation, a union is basically going, please, can this happen? <laughs> so very, very, very odd, very interesting though. And yeah, that's that's the, those are some of the big things ahead. Uh, where we go, I don't know. But I think those are probably, if you're looking ahead through the year and thinking, how is government policy and stuff going to affect games? Those are probably the three big things to look at.
0: And whether it actually hits the, the games you're playing, I don't know whether that will be something you see straight away or it might even be, you know, it begins to percolate into titles over time. Um, yeah. Yeah interesting stuff interesting stuff um if anything less loot boxes personally not a fan
1: yeah but uh oh, after after this many years of dealing with them neither am i <laughs> 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 that's it but yeah unfortunately as, as the old adage goes just because you don't like something doesn't mean you can't you should regulate against it so yeah
0: hopefully you're liking this podcast look at that for a segue because yeah. then Here we go because if you're liking this podcast you're not going to regulate against it maybe you're going to stick around and listen to some more Anyway what, we'll take a quick break and then we're going to start burrowing our way towards the end of our inaugural episode. Okay. A quick break from all the banter to take a moment to thank our patrons who support us here on the Branching Factor podcast. Without that support, we wouldn't have kicked off this fun new venture for us all to take part in. Don't forget that by supporting us on Patreon, you get to listen to each episode early and without all these pesky ads that break up the flow. Plus, you get bonus content and the chance to submit questions to us directly via the AI in Games Discord server and shout outs for our top tier patrons. It's all part of the package. To find out how to join, head on over to patreon.com forward slash AI in Games. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. dot com forward slash AI in Games. Thanks once again for listening to us here on Branching Factor. And with that, let's get back to the actual podcast. And we're oh. back after we've just managed to successfully slate several politicians and comment on their Mario Kart character choices. Yeah, but it's solid that, work. That's our secret. That's that's for us to take to the grave. As, so we're going to start wrapping up for this episode. I guess, George, thinking about everything that we just covered, what's well, I guess was what's the prediction? What what do you think looking at twenty twenty three? What are the what what are you thinking might happen, or the interesting things that could possibly appear in the industry, um, at this level that we've been talking about? I
1: guess throughout. So I think I think the first one is I think there's going to be a surprising amount happening. So I mean I think all of the stuff I'm talking about so far is going to move up to the uh, next level or or move towards its conclusion this year so I think you're going to have a lot of drama that's going to be possibly my first prediction I think my second prediction is going to be about where the industry is going to because I think a large amount of the way the industry's dealt with some of the challenges around these things is by actually making the positive arguments around games and about demonstrating yeah. that you know the game that the industry does does some really interesting stuff in terms of charity, supporting mental health. I, I feel like one of the big things that we're probably going to see this year is I think the industry as a whole maybe start to come around a bit more in terms of things around like climate change um and around the environment, um, in terms of a, a sort of a positive narrative. The industry's been gently moving in that direction. But I think uh, the UN playing for the planet stuff, I think it's reached about 50 members now. So that's that's the United Nations video games um, climate change initiative, you know, basically encouraging companies to, right. to go and take action. So I would kind of expect this year to be the year where I think that really starts to gather momentum because I think after a couple of years of gathering pace, it's, it's really starting to get there. Um, but yeah, I think otherwise, I mean, one of the things... That, that could, I think, be particularly interesting next year as well is we've had a few years where it's been relatively quieter for games. So, you know, we have, uh, 2020 had loads of releases. Then 2021 was really quiet because COVID was holding everything up. Then most of 2022, you had some weird quiet phases, but then you started to get, by the end of this year, you were getting... Um, the, you know, the new Marvel Access game, you're getting God of War Ragnarok. You're starting to get some really big games coming out. And I think what's happened is there's loads of games that have been delayed into 2023. So I think 2023 is going to be this year where you're going to see huge numbers of big game releases. But I think that does one of two things. I think the first thing is it means it's great for us because we've got loads and loads of games. But I think there's one, like, interesting potential challenge around that which is the cost of living the cost stuff of living mentioning, increases. right? So you're going to have lots and lots of big games going up against each other at a time where people have less money. And so I would not be at all surprised to see that cause some interesting moments, you know, in terms of where people actually think, what what would people normally project these games to have made if they'd maybe launched in their, say, selected spot in 2022 as they were meant to do? Versus what they actually going to make in 2023 when they land in between a potentially busy release schedule when people are looking at in places like the UK 10 11 inflation still year on year at the end of things like the energy price cap and all of that stuff, I think that could be quite interesting. I think you'll see which games are sort of massively popular because I think people will sort of go towards them. But you know, I wouldn't be at all surprised if it's a bit tough. In terms of other companies as well,
0: yeah. I wonder if how many of them would actually start to make a sort of tacit effort to actually de- internally delay a game that's done. Um, yeah, there's rumours. I, I, I was going to say I, I listened to um, Jeff Grubb quite a bit over and over in Giant Bomb, and he's actually talked about how several games, actually notably Nintendo, have games that are done and yeah. are not shipping, like Fire Emblem Engage, which comes out in January 2023. As apparently yeah. has been done for a while. They yeah. finished it and they was like, this is not the market to release it. No. So they're waiting until they're hoping there's a gap that's yeah. suitable for them. And I wonder if a lot of other certain types of games that maybe they can get away with it a little bit longer. They're yeah. like, do we hold this off another three months? Is it better to release a summer game, for example? Which is historically I considered a terrible idea.
1: You don't release yeah. a game in the summer. But it might be that
0: that's the best place to get eyes
1: on it. And, and I think as well, just, in, in, you know, it's a sort of very final thing in regards to that too, is I think, even though I think there could be some challenges there in terms of games, one, one of the big things about the industry is because it's shifted much more towards running shops rather than selling products, yeah. I think actually, generally speaking, the industry is a lot less liable to big crashy moments like it might have historically been. And so I think businesses are able to maybe take that longer view and go you know what we actually have money coming in you know nintendo maybe looks at mario kart and looks at the booster pack and goes actually that's maybe generated more than we thought it was going to because mario kart sold so many copies on the switch that you've got a much higher install base so we're generating cash there and we know there's a zelda game in you know we know there's going to be breath of the wild 2 landing at this point so how about we just pop this into a different quarter and just go and take what we can at that moment in time when it's quieter and it's the big release versus (laughs) trying to be what's going on in march or april so i think that's going to be a really big story but i wouldn't be at all surprised i mean i I, i've heard similar things about companies saying we've we're basically done but we're now just trying to find the moment to do it um and i think it's very good news for the biggest businesses the thing i worry more about is independent developers who are much more sort of subject to that kind of market pressure where already it's tough to break through it's tough to get people to buy your game. And then imagine you've suddenly just coming up to a release schedule where it's just like big release, big release, big release, big release. And it's like, where do I get my 15 quid indie game launched? You know, mm, yeah. that, that's, <clears throat> that I think will be the challenge. So uh, it might be tough for indies. I think that, that's the
0: case. Especially, you know, if you're an indie, I've been there myself. I've done it myself. Like I'm going to commit, I'm going to launch this game at the end of this month. I've got four weeks left to get this done. We've passed lot check. I've got, I've got, I've got, to keep pushing my marketing. I've got, and I've, I've yeah. put in whatever little finance I've got towards that. I'm still doing bug fixes or whatever, but it, like you say, if, if, or like we say, if, if games are done and then these big companies go, we're just going to hold off. And then instead of doing the long drawn out three months of marketing in the build up, we go, yo, we're releasing big AAA title in three weeks. Yeah. And then they just blitz the marketing because yeah. they've got it prepped and they're ready to just hit the button that yeah. depending on the overlap that can just that could just kill your game and and, and the other horrible
1: and and the other big thing as well is also just doing you know companies just choosing to delay by 12 weeks because you know in terms of for them they go that pushes this money in this part of the balance sheet on this quarter into that part of the balance sheet in the next quarter and they go, well, maybe we don't have as much money in the war chest, but we've probably got massive cash reserves or whatever. We can go and dip into that. Finally, yeah. We can plan around that. But if you're an indie, you're looking for that space in the calendar. You are yes. always going, where is that space? And you are planning that space often on the basis that you know around things like E3, Gamescom, the Game Awards, the big games are going to get announced with their release dates and they're going to stay locked in place. So you look at all of those things, you get to the point in the year where most of those things have happened. Then suddenly you just see the tweet from that developer saying, to make sure the game is ready, we're going to wait 12 weeks. And suddenly that quiet launch day in February that you had earmarked down where you yeah. were like, I'm only going up against other indies, maybe one re-release, great, suddenly becomes... And and the example I'm actually thinking of here is, is basically Harry Potter, right? You know, whatever... right. Frankly, you think of the diabolical perspectives of the person who created that franchise. It still remains a big name, and you know it's still one of those things where it's going to have a big marketing push behind it. So, if you suddenly saw that get delayed, and you just go, "Okay, I'd planned around that being in November. Now it's suddenly in February. What are we doing?" Yeah. Uh, Anywho,
0: I've been, I've I've been, I remember actually doing that myself. I mean, I say this as if you know, sure footing was like some. Uh, massive sales success. Uh, it never even broke even. Um, but uh, you know, we were thinking that we want to make sure there's a bit of a window because we're just competing with the 800 other games that are coming out on Steam that day, as it is. Yeah. Um. I think actually, in truth, it's closer to like 80 games or something that came out every day on Steam. At least that yeah. was in 2019 or whatever when I originally released it. but Yeah. yeah you're thinking, what are the big games, and you know, because that's going to dominate the conversation on yeah. social media. So. You know, these are always things that you're worried about. Oh, Absolutely. I don't, I don't, I, don't um, I empathize with any indie devs out there still yeah. on that, on that push.
1: But anyway, yes. <clears throat> I empathize too. I also just got briefly distracted by what was clearly a helicopter flying overhead. And I was wondering if that was an independent developer just, just coming in to smash our windows in and uh <laughs> tell me that I was wrong about all of these things. But, uh, I but yeah, think I, I, I
0: think it's the podcast police and they're telling us that it's time to wrap this up time to wrap this up yeah you've got, exactly. you got you've got socializing to do i've got to go um, down i've got to go down the pub that's what i gotta do oh such hardship oh, it's, a, it's a tough life you you will take you will drink an extra one for me because of course i will of course there you go there you go and then at some point we should actually uh rendezvous in person and we do could a actually podcast. There you go. a podcast oh love it that's see it. this is why i brought you on you're all about the puns i need a exactly. good pun. i need a good pun master
1: I'm happy to be a pun master general as well as the person who talks politics for well over an hour.
0: You see, everyone needs a hobby. So Exactly,
1: exactly. And I don't I, know I Which one of those two did, well, was the hobby? <laughs> puns, definitely puns. Yeah. Not, not, not politics. Not, not the other bits, yeah, screw that. <laughs> so yeah, this has
0: been our inaugural episode, episode numero uno, number one of Branching Factor. Uh, thanks, George, for coming in to be the co-host today. So what we're going to be doing for the next three episodes is that we're actually bringing in the rest of the gang. Everyone's got their own highlight episode. And then the idea is we're going to have everybody come together after all that. Uh, The Voltron episode, as we've nicknamed it. We're going to have everyone in the the group together. We're all going to hang out. In the meantime, thanks to all of you for checking this out, for listening to us. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you've got any questions or comments for us, there's a whole bunch of different ways you can reach out to us. For myself, uh, I was going to say we're both on Twitter. Uh, yeah. I am AI in Games on Twitter, and you are George Osborne. There you go, nice and, easy. Nice and uh, easy, easy peasy. If you've got any, if you'd like to send in an email to us, by all means, reach out at branchingfactor at aiingames There we go. I've already got the email the email for the email address set up. Nailed it, <laughs> nailed it. Plus, of course, if you're a patron who supports all things AI in Games, check out the podcast corner of the Discord server where you can submit questions to us. And then we'll get back to them, either in individual or collective episodes, or we might even do a special correspondence episode or two where we just respond mm-hmm. to the fan mail if we get enough of it. Please don't sign yeah. us up to any spam. That's also uh, that's also important. And um, um, Speaking of patrons, of course, this has all been supported thanks to the AI and Games Patreon. So if you are interested in supporting this show and all the other stuff, uh, that's happening over on AI and Games and our newly minted side channel AI and Games Plus where if you've been watching the video version of this podcast you've been watching it from that channel so congratulations, you've found the new channel so yeah, by all means check out AIandgames.com forward slash Patreon to find out how you can support us and all the cool things you get by virtue of doing so but with that, let's bring it to a close I've been Tommy I've been George I pointed the wrong way this is it's a, all this fine a, it's a video this is a video joke anyway if you're listening okay. to this on audio it doesn't matter this has been Branching Factor thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you all next time The Branching Factor podcast is hosted and produced by me Tommy Thompson with support from Anne Sullivan George Osborne Mike Cook and Kwang Yoon. our theme music is provided courtesy of Ben Ridge and the logo and thumbnail art is thanks to Helen O'Dell Special thanks to Shraddha Gupta and Phoebe Trigg for their additional production support and of course to all of you out there listening. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Branching Factor. Wherever you are in the world, be sure to stay safe, have fun and we'll be back.